I was meeting another pastor for the first time the other day, and one of the questions he asked was, uh, what is your church like? I said, well, I don't know. Ask questions. What do you mean? What do you want to know? And he said, well, if someone was visiting for the first time, what would they say was the predominant concept, the predominant uh, flavor of your church. I'm not sure exactly what word he used. And I said, well, when most people come to our church, they are impressed by the reverence with which we worship and the seriousness with which we approach the Word of God. And he said, that must really meet the felt needs of some people. And I knew exactly where he was coming from. And I said, well, we never thought of it that way. We don't do this in order to try to meet the felt needs of people. And we try to do it to please the Lord. But we have noticed that there is, at least in a few people, something of a backlash to the uh, seeker-friendly, contemporary style of worship. And people, some people at least, are getting a little tired of that and are looking for something that is a little more reverent and God-centered. And if that be true then that must be a work of the Spirit of God, and we're very grateful for it. Well, today we move into 2 Peter chapter 2. And the title of my sermon today is Stripping Off the Old Clothes. Stripping Off the Old Clothes. You know, of course, that there is no chapter and verse divisions in the original language, and therefore there really is no division between chapter 1 and chapter 2. Sometimes these chapter divisions are at very obvious breaks in the thought, and sometimes they seem to intrude a bit into the flow of the thought. And I would say this time it probably is maybe more of an intrusion than a recognition of a break in thought. Because as we move into chapter 2, Peter is continuing to deal with the results of salvation, that great and glorious salvation that he laid before us in the first half of chapter 1, He then, as you remember, told us how we ought to live in the light of that salvation. If we have been saved by the grace of God, if this salvation has changed our lives, then there are certain things that ought to characterize our lives. And he begins describing those in the last half of chapter 1, and he continues that as he moves on into chapter 2. In chapter 2, we come in verse 2 to a very familiar verse that nearly everyone has heard. As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, or the sincere milk of the word, as it is in the old King James. And indeed, that is an important verse, and we're going to be looking at it briefly because verses 1, 2, and 3 are all one sentence in the original language. And so we would like to look at this whole sentence before examining a part, but our primary focus today is going to be on verse 1. But let's begin with a brief overview of this next section in Peter's epistle. And we see there is, number one, something to lay aside, number two, something to acquire, and then third, three reasons for doing this. First of all, there's something to lay aside. That's verse one. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. Here's something for us to put away out of our lives. And then secondly, there's something for us to acquire, and that's verse 2. As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word. Something for us to receive into our lives, to desire, to crave. Actually, the word that is translated desire is really stronger probably than our English word desire. To intently desire, to greatly desire, to crave. As newborn babes in Christ crave the pure milk of the word. And that verb, translated desire, is the main verb of this entire sentence. It is the command, it is an imperative, and it tells us what we are to do. We are to desire the milk of God's word. We are to crave the milk of God's word. But then Peter lays before us three reasons why we ought to do this. Number one, because it's necessary for our spiritual growth. The last part of verse 2, that you may grow thereby. As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, why? That you may grow thereby. You can't grow without it. 
So that's the first reason why you should desire the pure milk of God's word. Secondly, because it's an appropriate expression of gratitude. And that's a suggestion in verse 3. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. If you have been changed by the grace of God, if you have personally tasted that the Lord is gracious, He has been gracious to you, then an appropriate expression of your gratitude is to desire the pure milk of the Word which He has given. And a third reason is anticipated response of spiritual delight because in that third verse, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, there's the idea that this is something that you have done in the past. Presumably at the time of your conversion, you personally tasted the graciousness of the Lord. That became real to you. That became precious to you. All right, if that's what happened to you in the past, this spiritual delight at the time of your conversion, then you will want to continue that. And how do you continue in this spiritual delight? By desiring the pure milk of God's word. That's the way you do this. So that's an overview. Now, secondly, we're going to look at the connection as we focus in upon verse 1, which is our text for today. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. And astute students of the Bible will immediately notice that connecting word that begins the verse, therefore, and you all know what that means. That means this connects this thought with thoughts that have gone before. It connects verse 1 to the extended passage before it and even behind it. And so first of all, let's notice how it connects backwards. It connects backwards, first of all, to the concept of holiness. Remember, if you have been saved, said Peter, then you need to strive for holiness. For God himself is holy. He's a holy God. And so he said in chapter 1, verse 14, As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who calls you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy, skipping down, therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. Do you see the obvious connection? The things that are listed in verse 1 are all contrary to holiness. The holiness that he set before us in chapter 1, he didn't really describe in any great detail. He just told us that this is our responsibility to be holy, to become holy, to be holy like God is holy. And that tells us a lot as we study what God is like as he has revealed himself in his word. Then that tells us a great deal about holiness. But now to get down to where the rubber meets the road and how that looks in the the lives of the Christians, to be holy looks like this. You get all of these unholy things out of your life. Because they're all contrary to holiness. Secondly, this connects backwards to the requirement to love. Verse 22, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. Why? Because all of these are the opposite of love. What does it mean to love your brother? What does it look like to love others? Well, we can start by talking about what it doesn't look like. And all of these things in verse 1 are contrary to love. You can't love one another and be acting in this fashion, therefore laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. And thirdly, it connects backwards because of consistency. In other words, these things are inconsistent with the new nature. Verse 23, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. If you have been born again by incorruptible seed, then you need to get out of your life all of these corruptible things. Because we all recognize that these are manifestations of corruption, of the old nature, and that's inconsistent 
with the new life of Christ that's been placed within you. Therefore, laying aside these things that are listed in verse 1. And so that's how our text for this morning connects backwards. But secondly, how does it connect forward? Well, we've already seen it to some degree, but what Peter is telling us is, if you are going to cultivate a desire for the pure milk of God's Word, you have got to get these things out of your life because these things will destroy any capacity to receive the milk of God's Word. As a matter of fact, these things will destroy even your desire for the milk of God's Word. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking... As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, you can't desire the pure milk of the word until first you strip out of your life all of these things which will destroy your hunger for the word of God. Sin destroys our appetite for spiritual food, is what Peter is telling us. You probably all heard the saying about the Bible, This book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. Well, that's what Peter's saying. A proper reception of an application of this book in your life will keep your life from sin. That's the way that you keep your heart right with God and keep your sins confessed and keep yourself walking in fellowship with the Lord. This book will keep you from sin, but if you neglect the book and cultivate sin, allow sin to come in and don't deal with it, don't remove it, don't act upon it as we are told to do, then that sin will rob you of your hunger and appetite for the Word of God. If you're going to desire the sincere milk of the Word that you may grow thereby, you've got to get these things out of your life. And it's not just these sins, because, of course, there are many sins, And Peter only names a few here. But the point is that any sin and all sin, not just what we might consider to be the big ones, will destroy your capacity to receive the full benefit of God's Word. In fact, it will destroy your capacity to receive much benefit from God's Word at all. Because the life of Christ can never be completely destroyed within us, then there will always be some capacity for the Word of God. Thank God for that. Because if it were ever entirely destroyed, how would we ever recover? How would we ever see what went wrong? How would we ever have the light of God to show us our sin, to confess our sin, to be recovered, to to recover our backsliding? How could that ever happen if the life of God within us were ever totally destroyed? But sin of any kind will greatly retard our ability to benefit from God's Word. The nourishment of God's Word just gets blocked out by sin. And it doesn't take the big sins. It can be little sins, or what we call little sins, like malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and evil speaking. I may be talking to some here this morning who have lost the strong desire for God's Word that once you have, and you know it. You know it. You don't crave the Word of God with anything near the same intensity that you once did. And sometimes when that happens, people think the problem is with others. It's, it's my wife. It's my husband. It's, it's, it's what's going on at work. It's uh, somebody at church. The problem is over there. And we need to realize that Almost always the problem is here. Not my brother, not my sister, but it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. It's almost always sin of some kind, some description, some variety, many times not detected immediately by us, but it's almost always the entrance of sin into our lives that has robbed us of our appetite of God's word. Sin that is practiced, sin that is minimized, sin that is justified, sin that is excused, sin that is overlooked, sin that is ignored, will take away our desire for the Word of God. As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the Word, that you may grow thereby. But you need to realize that first, if that's going to happen, you've got to lay aside all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, all envy, and all evil speaking, yea, anything that is contrary 
to the revealed will of God. Because sin is sin, whether we understand it, recognize it, are aware of it or not. Sin is an objective matter. It is a transgression. It is a trespass against the law of God. We have crossed the line, the boundary which God has, has set forth. And whenever we cross that boundary, it affects our ability to fellowship with God and to receive benefit from his word. And so as we move now into our text in verse 1, all of us need to breathe a prayer to God and ask the Holy Spirit to show us how this text will apply to me. But now we look at the requirement. And here it is, 2 Peter 2.1, or 1 Peter 2.1. Therefore laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. That's what's required by God if we're going to receive the benefit of God's word. That's what's required by God if we're going to be holy as he is holy. That's what's required by God if we're going to be able to love one another as Christ has loved us and as we are to love others. This is what is required if we are going to show any kind of consistency between what we profess and what we actually manifest in our lives. And it requires purposeful action on our part. Laying aside... Rid yourselves is one translation. Cast aside is another translation. This verb, which in our form here is a participle, but it is used of removing garments elsewhere in the Bible. Remember when the Jews stoned Stephen at the end of Acts chapter 7, and it says they laid down their garments at the feet of Saul. Well, when they did that, they stripped off their garments and cast them down at his feet. And that's the same word that is used here. Lay aside certain things, just like those people in their frenzy, in their haste, stripped off their clothes and cast them down at the feet of Saul so they could get on with the business of stoning Stephen in like manner. Cast off, strip off, lay aside, rid yourselves of all of these things. So that you can please the Lord. This kind of put off language is very common in the New Testament actually. The same verb is used in a number of places. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Romans 13.12. Or, yeah, 13.12. But that's not it. So I move on from that one. (laughs) Ephesians 4.22. That you put off concerning your former conduct the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. Verse 25, therefore putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Put off, put off, strip off the old man and his sins. Uh, Colossians 3.9 has a similar phraseology. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man. With his, with his deeds. Same thing. Put off the old man with his deeds. And um, Hebrews 12.1. Similar idea. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let us lay aside every weight Put it aside. Strip it off. It's necessary that we learn to do that. And James in chapter 1 verse 21 says, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. The same connection that Peter made between what we must put off in order to receive the word of God is made by James. Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and... Receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. You can't receive the word of God until first you get out of your life these things which displease the Lord. And this is something that we must do. The participle really takes on an imperative. Even though it's not an imperative verb, it it is linked to the imperative in verse 2, which is a very strong command. Desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. And so this participle takes on the same character, and that becomes a command as well. Therefore, lay aside, put off, strip away from yourself as quickly as possible 
All of these things. And this requires holy zeal. It requires energetic action. It's something that we are responsible to do. We are to make definite, complete, and an entire break with sin. And if we will not do that, we are going to block the reception of God's word into our souls. It's a serious matter. And every true child of God recognizes how serious this matter truly is. And so there's purposeful action, but there's also appropriate relationships. Because getting these things out of our lives is necessary to restore what sin has destroyed. The new birth restores our relationship with God. The relationship that was destroyed in the Garden of Eden. When our first father, Adam, who had by creation a wonderful, unbroken relationship with God, saw that relationship completely destroyed by sin. Redemption, the work of salvation, the giving of Jesus Christ is what restores that relationship. But that new birth, which restores our relationship with God and which enables us now for the first time to begin to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. We haven't reached that pinnacle yet, but we can now begin to move in that direction after our relationship with God has been restored. Before conversion, we're not able to love God at all. And if we think we do, then we don't understand our own heart. Or if we think we do, we don't know the God of the Bible, do we? Because the natural heart always hates the God of the Bible, the true God. God as he reveals himself in his word. That's why men are so busy fashioning idols, false gods that they want to worship because man wants to be religious. He is religious. He has a, an innate religious desire that God has placed within him that's not completely destroyed in the fall. And man wants to be thought of as religion, religious, but he doesn't like God, the true God, as he is. And so he will craft a more acceptable God that he can worship in his sinful condition, and the God that will not be distasteful to him in his natural condition. But it's only when we have been born again that we can truly begin to worship the God of the Bible, the true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now we can begin to love him as he ought to be loved. But not only does a new birth restore our relationship with God, but the new birth restores our relationship with men. We have a hard time having good relationships with others. Our sinful nature rises up so often, and those responses from our sinful heart are what destroys relationships with other people. And we go through life with one broken relationship after another, and it's very difficult to stop that until you have been Saved by the grace of God, born again. And when you have been regenerated and have the Holy Spirit within you, now there is a new capacity. Not only do you have a right relationship with God that has been restored, but now you have a capacity to relate properly to your fellow man as you never did before. And not only can you now begin to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, but now for the first time you can really begin to love your neighbor as yourself. Again, you'll never reach the pinnacle of that. Until you get to heaven, there's still too much of the old Adam lingering around. But now you can begin to love your neighbors yourself. You can begin to act in the way that we were created to act one to another before the fall in the garden. The new birth places us in a new family, the family of God. And that means we have brothers and sisters and others that we are to relate to. And that's a good place to begin restoring these relationships, which the new birth gives us an ability to do. But we've got to work at these family relationships, just like in your own family. If I could come down and talk to every one of you about your family and ask you, do you have any relatives in your family that you have a little bit of a hard time having the kind of relationship with that you'd like to have? I think there'd be a 100% response, yes. Why? I just described why. We're fallen creatures. 
And we know that we have to work at those relationships, and it's not easy. But when the Lord has changed our hearts, at least we've now got the tools, we've got the capacity to work on those relationships and to see them restored. And that begins by eliminating the things that harm, that damage, that destroy those relationships. And so here it is. Therefore, lay aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. All these are sins that destroy relationships within the family. That's got to go. And so Peter's not so concerned here about what we would consider to be the big sins, the grosser sins, fornication, adultery, drunkenness, murder. Obviously those are wrong. Obviously those have no place in the life of a child of God. But also, in most cases, those are not a big problem. But these, big problem, even for God's children, big problem. And so these so-called respectable sins that are often accepted within the church without any concern to root them out are the sins that destroy relationships, the sins that demonstrate our lack of love for our brother as we ought to have. And so what are these sins? There's five of them. Number one, malice. All malice. And three of these have the adjective all in front of it. And the other two have something else to indicate the comprehensive nature of what Peter's talking about. But when he says all malice, he means all kinds of malice, all forms of malice. No exceptions here. It's not all right to maintain a couple of areas of malice if you get most of the malice out of your life. All malice has got to go. Now, this Greek word is sometimes used of general wickedness of any kind and can be translated evil, depravity, or vice and speaks of all kinds of evil. But in the context here, it obviously speaks of what we call malice in the English word, the English definition. It means ill will toward others, desire to harm others, desire to inflict pain upon others, malice. As I recall a little bit of the phraseology of the Gettysburg Address, I recall that Abraham Lincoln said something about, with malice toward none. That was the ideal. I don't know how how well that ideal was achieved, but that was the ideal. Malice toward none. That's the way it ought to be in a country. That's the way it ought to be in a community. But it's not. never is because of sin. That's the way it ought to be in our families. But again, sometimes it's difficult. Those relatives, that, that one you thought about when I asked a moment ago, do you have any relatives that you have any trouble with? It may be that there is some malice either on your part toward them or on their part toward you. Ill will that hasn't been rooted out. That's the problem. It needs to be dealt with. This Adamic, sinful desire, this maliciousness, where did it come from? This desire to hurt others, to inflict pain. We probably wouldn't do it in a physical way. I hope not. But there's a lot of that that takes place in this world. A lot of the the uh, injury and mayhem that takes place is when somebody who has a, a malicious, a, a malevolent spirit towards somebody else just goes ahead and acts upon it and punches them in the nose, bashes their head in, shoots them, or whatever it may be. Most of the time, Christians don't take it to that extent, thank God. But, you know, the tongue is a pretty sharp instrument, and many times it is used deliberately to inflict pain. It is used to bring hurt, to harm others, to make them feel bad. And that's sinful. That's the old Adam. That's got to go. All malice. Secondly, all deceit. This word originally meant bait for fish. Mark Webb talked about fishing, didn't he? Talked about bait. Bait fishing as opposed to net fishing. Well, this is a word that is used for the bait that is used when you 
bait a hook and throw it in the line, or throw, throw the line in the water and try to catch a fish. And of course, what is that? That is trying to deceive the fish. You want to make him think that the hook is something good, when in fact it's really bad, isn't it? It's a deceitful act. You're disguising the hook. You don't want him to know that you're trying to catch him for dinner or for sport, but you want to give him something that looks good. You are deceiving him, deliberately deceiving him with that lure, with that bait. And that's the way that you catch a fish. And that's what often happens in the lives of people. And we're supposed to get rid of all deceit. Again, that word all. Everything that is deceitful. Falsehoods and dishonesty of every kind. Trickery, guile, craftiness. It all needs to go. It has no place in the life of a child of God. Speaking well to someone or of someone with ulterior motives, not really because you want to pay them an honest and genuine compliment, but because you have an ulterior motive. You have something else that you want to get out of that. Flattery, that's what that's called. Or any kind of deceit for personal gain. Just failing to be honest so that you can gain something in return. And some people get in such a habit of this that they tell lies more easily than they tell the truth. When you tell a lie, it becomes easier to tell a second one and the third one and the fourth one. When your life is filled with guile and craftiness and deceit, when you've spent your life trying to manipulate others for your own gain, after a while it comes pretty, becomes pretty difficult to even speak honestly most of the time. But anything that is less than the full and honest truth is sinful and is dishonoring to the Lord and has no place in the life of a child of God. God's people of all people are to be people of utmost honesty and integrity. We tell the truth. We tell the truth in love, speaking the truth in love. We don't tell the truth maliciously, to hurt, to cut. All malice must go out along with truth-telling, but tell the truth. Sometimes the truth will hurt. We don't want it to. We don't intend for it to, but of course... It's sometimes the word is like, the truth is like a scalpel which goes within the soul and cuts out error, cuts out misconceptions, cuts out canker. But our goal, our commitment is to tell the truth and to tell it as kindly as possible whenever there's opportunity that the truth is going to bring hurt. But above everything else, we tell the truth. Even little white lies to spare other people's feelings are not pleasing to the Lord. That may be perfectly acceptable in polite society, but it's not pleasing to the Lord. You don't have to tell everything you know, and so you don't have to tell the truth that hurts, but you don't have to tell a lie. Surely you can find a truthful way to deal with someone when it's not appropriate to tell the truth that might be hurtful to them. They're not ready for it at this time. But you don't have to tell a lie. Christians must cultivate truth-telling. Christians must be people of utmost integrity. Christians need to be the kind of people that other people know. Whatever he or she tells me is true. I know it's true because I've learned that they always speak the truth. If that's not your reputation, then there's something wrong with your behavior. Off with the old. Strip off the old clothes, those old dirty, soiled garments of deceit and malice. Strip them off. They've got to go. Third is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Insincerity. This word is in the plural, and so though it doesn't have the word all in front of it, it has the same idea. It's the idea of hypocrisies of all kinds. Any form of hypocrisy. The word was originally used of an actor wearing a mask. In Greek plays, I don't know if you've ever seen a Greek drama, a Greek tragedy. I've had the privilege. <laughs> I want to be honest here. It was a privilege to be exposed to this so that I know what it's like. I can't say that I actually enjoyed it at the time. But um, I've had the privilege of, of uh, seeing a Greek tragedy, 
And the way Greek tragedies or Greek plays are carried out, the actor comes in holding a mask, and you're supposed to think of him or her as the character of that that's that mask. Then if they want to change characters, they pick up another mask. It's usually on a stick, and they stick that up in front of their face, and you think about the person that's represented by that mask. And that's the way the actor carries out his role. He's playing a role. He's not who he is. He is who the mask represents. That's who he's being for the moment. Well, we all understand that on the stage. But the problem is that sometimes we are playing roles and wearing masks in our everyday relationships. We are masking sin by an outward show of righteousness. Sometimes we're playing church. Sometimes we're Mr. or Mrs. Spiritual Christian on the outside with our mask. But that's a far cry from what really is going on in our heart and our relationship with God. Hypocrisy are any actions that are inconsistent with our Christian profession. Hypocrisy is any practice that is inconsistent with the doctrine that we say we believe. Hypocrisy is any outward actions that are inconsistent with what really is going on in our heart and life. Hypocrisy is acting one way at church and another way at home or at school or at the workplace. All goody-goody. Mr. Goody, two shoes at church. Sometimes you can catch it. It's not really good, but sometimes it's almost funny. You can catch it as you see people exit their cars in the parking lot, and you can tell by the way they get out of the car that they've been arguing and fighting with each other all the way to church. But somewhere between the car and the front door, the smile goes on. And now it's Mr. and Mrs. Perfect Couple and Mr. and Mrs. Perfect Family with all the children and everything's all smiles and everything's all wonderful. Look at this wonderful Christian family. And that's not the way it is at all. Hypocrisy. You really want everybody else to think that you've got it all together, but you don't. And what do you do about that? Well, I'll start acting like the only rascal I am. No, what you're supposed to do is correct it on the other end. Start acting at home the way that you know you're supposed to act. Start acting at home the way you want people to think you are when you come to church. That's the way to solve this problem. Rid yourself of hypocrisy. Get that mask off so that what you are at church, is a genuine reflection of what you are at home. If I could talk to your wife, if I could talk to your husband, and they would be honest with me, many times people aren't. Back to telling the truth. But if I could talk to your husband or wife and they would be honest with me, would they tell me that he or she is the same sincere, godly Christian at home as you think they are at church? as they present themselves at church. Same person, no difference. Same person at church and at home. If that is not the case, then you have some putting off to do, some changing to do. Envy. Again, in the plural. And so it carries the idea of all envy, all forms of envy. Envy is the feeling of displeasure at the gain of another. It's the opposite of thankfulness for the good for good that comes to another. We all know what envy is because we have all experienced it. We have all felt it at times. After all, we're all sons and daughters of Adam. Let's be honest. And envy is that feeling of of resentment when something good comes to another. Maybe that relative that you have trouble with. Maybe part of the problem is that they are richer than you are and you resent that. Or, or you're richer than they are, and they resent that with you. There's envy that's, that's causing the problem there. Maybe somebody else has beauty that you want. You envy that. Maybe somebody else has a talent that you wish you had. You envy that. Maybe someone else is given a promotion, a raise, a, a position at work that you thought ought to be yours, or at least you didn't want it to be theirs, and so you resent that. That's a form of envy. One of the commentators I read said, envy plagues all organizations, and I think that's probably accurate. Envy plagues all organizations. You see it a lot of times in the workplace. Relationships that are established with people at work, and then something good happens to somebody else, and their, their relationship 
changes a little bit. The status has changed a little. And now they have something that they didn't have before, something good, some favor, some promotion, something better. And they got an inheritance. Their uncle died, and they, they inherited a half a million dollars. And, and uh, what should be our response to that? We should rejoice. We should be glad. We should be thankful that such a blessing came to them. What is it within our heart that causes us at times to resent that? That's envy. Adamic sinfulness. Yes, it plagues all organizations, including the church, which is an organization In a perfect world, it would not be so. In heaven, it will not be so. But on earth, it is so. It ought not to be so. It needs to be stripped out, stripped off, rid ourselves of this, put this away. But yes, even in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, sometimes envy is at work. This spirit of resentment for the good that happens to another. Well, Peter says, you've got to get rid of that or you're not going to be able to receive the pure milk of God's word. You've got to get rid of that because that's the opposite of loving your neighbor as yourself. If you loved your neighbor as yourself, you'd be glad. If that thing happened to you, you'd be glad. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you'd be glad when it happens to your neighbor. And the fact that you don't, even for a fleeting moment, sometimes we, we recognize that and, and recognize it as sin, confess it as wrong, ask God to forgive us, ask God to help us to have the right attitude. But that fleeting moment when we had the wrong attitude is a reminder that we are still struggling with remaining sin. And it's there, that old Adamic fallenness is there, and we're not loving our neighbor as ourselves, or that fleeting thought would never have crossed our mind. Our immediate response would have been, yes, I'm so glad that they have been blessed in that way. I am delighted because I love them like I love myself. Why should that be so rare? What does that tell us? And finally, all evil speaking. Back to the word all. All evil speaking, which is speaking about slander of every kind, speech that runs down and disparages another. It's talking about gossip, what the Bible sometimes calls backbiting. Defamation of character, the whispering that sometimes goes on, that stops immediately when the wrong person walks up. Criticizing others in their absence instead of to their face. You know what the Bible tells us? If you've got a complaint about somebody, there's an appropriate way to express it. And you know what that is, don't you? You go and talk to them about it. When you do that, presumably you're going to do it a whole lot more carefully. A whole lot more kindly. A whole lot more thoughtfully. Bathe that conversation in prayer. If you really have a desire to help, a real love for them, you really want to help them. You go and talk to them about it, and that's exactly the right thing to do. But why is it that we so instinctively, so naturally do just the opposite? We ignore the person that we really have a responsibility to talk to about it, and we go and tell everybody else. That's evil speaking. That's slander. That's sin. That, by the way, is a good envy detector. You say, well, I don't ever envy anybody. Do you ever talk about somebody behind their back? Do you ever criticize somebody and run them down to others when they're not present? That usually is one of the manifestations of envy. That grows out of envy. That shows you you've got more envy than you thought you did. And all such attitudes like these five... And all such actions like these five are incompatible with the new life of Christ. And all such attitudes and actions are incompatible with the desire for pure milk. You want to be able to grow in grace. You want to be able to receive full benefit from the word of God. 
You want to really be able to drink it in and to get from that word everything that God has designed for you to have from it? Then you better give some serious and deliberate attention to stripping off these old clothes, these old soiled garments of malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Well, from this lesson, there, or from this passage, there are a number of important lessons. Some of them I trust we've already learned. But I want to remind you how much the Bible emphasizes sins of the tongue, how important they are. Ephesians 4:25. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Sounds like Paul saying the same thing that Peter said. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. How often the Bible speaks about sins of the tongue. We went through the book of James recently, didn't we? A whole chapter there is devoted to the tongue. And then more in the following chapter. James 3, 6, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire by hell. Our tongue. James 4, 11, do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And that's just a couple of Verses that speak about the evils of the tongue, the dangers of the tongue. Here's something our Lord said about it. In Matthew 12:34, For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. When these things come out, what do they reveal? Sinful heart. Adamic heart. Jesus said this in Matthew 12:37, For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Words. This is pretty important. In fact, I would submit to you that this is a major manifestation of worldliness. You say, now wait a minute, worldliness is fornication, and drunkenness, and theft, revelry. No, worldliness is acting like the world instead of acting like Christ. This is the way the world acts. This is what dominates the workplace. This is what characterizes social relationships in the world. This is what you find in virtually every teacher's lounge across America. This is what you find in every office in America. This is what you find in every factory in America. This is what you find in the world. And when Christians act like this, they're demonstrating worldliness. They're acting like the world instead of like Christ. Christ didn't talk like this. Christ didn't act this way. We're supposed to be Christ-like. When we're doing this, we're demonstrating utter worldliness. It's awful easy for us to focus on the big sins, particularly the big sins of others, immorality, sex, drugs, theft, and so forth. Or it's easy sometimes for us to major on minors, to become real legalistic and be all concerned about dress styles and so forth, and so unconcerned about things like this, so unconcerned about our own tongue, our own sinfully depraved tongue that demonstrates evil, sin, wickedness, devilishness so often. And therefore, when God brings his word to bear upon our lives, first of all, we need to ask God to apply his word to our hearts, to show us our guilt, our need. Not my neighbor, but me. Not my brother, not my sister, but me, O oh Lord. We need to ask God to forgive us for Christ's sake. Christians know that they have a place of cleansing. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from 
all unrighteousness. There's another all. Thank God for that. The all malice and all deceit and all evil speaking has a corresponding all. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Praise God for that. And if a review of this area of sinfulness, just one of many, has shown you your need of Christ, that you're outside of Christ, if God has used this to convict your soul, to show you how much you need a Savior, then I I will tell you where you can find an all-sufficient Savior whose blood will cleanse from all sin. I can tell you where there's a Savior, that that all who come to Him, He will cast none out. I can tell you where there's a Savior who died on the cross and took the place of sinners and shed His blood as payment for man's sins and rose again from the dead and promises that all who trust Him by faith will be cleansed of their sins. And if you see yourself today as a sinner in need of a Savior, then go to Christ. And let's ask God to help us to change. Like Jesus said to the woman caught in adultery, what did he say? He said, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. May God help us. I haven't stopped yet. What's all this rustling? I'll say the closing word in a moment. Don't leave before I've finished. Don't check out mentally before I'm done. I suspect that's a manifestation that some of this has hit home. You're feeling a little squirmy and nervous. But let me finish. This is for all of us. Let's pray that as God's people, we will act like Christians, shall we pray? Oh Lord, your word has hit home this morning. It is alive and powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It does pierce to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Oh Lord, your word has peeled back our own hearts today, and given us a glimpse that we are not happy with. Thank God, O Lord, that you have made us unhappy with that sight. Now, Lord, show us the remedy. Lead us to the solid rock that is higher than I, where we can find cleansing and find a solid footing for a life that is pleasing unto you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.